0: Good morning. I'm Brenda Whitaker, and we are reading from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid— But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers in Calvary with me. When Sandballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We, as some of you know if you've been here uh, last week, we're in the beginning of a series in the book of Nehemiah an Old Testament book, Um, a different kind of book, right? Not written by a prophet, um, very practical. Um, You might say not a lot of theology in the book, but that's not really true. There's plenty of theology in the book. It just comes at you from a different direction. But if you're going to think about the book of Nehemiah, and you know much about the Old Testament. In scriptures, you know that there's another book that's kind of joined with it in a way. It's called Ezra. Often it's described as Ezra, Nehemiah, as if it were one book. The, the book of Ezra, supposedly, and chronology is a difficult thing in these books. Because nobody sat down and said such and such date. But from what we're able to gather, Ezra precedes Nehemiah. And what we know at the very beginning of the book of Ezra is that Ezra recalls how Cyrus, the king of Persia, had made a decree that the people of Israel who were in captivity could return to their land. And the story of Ezra is the return to the land and the rebuilding or the attempted rebuilding of the temple. Some 13 to 18 years later, depending on how you figure it, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and this is for the rebuilding of the walls, not the temple. What's also interesting is that, as I mentioned, I believe last week, none of this would have happened, theoretically, without the decree of a pagan king. A king who really had no reason to believe in Israel other than reasons for his own security, which is to create a state where people were happy in the Middle East to be a buffer between he to the north and Egypt to the south. But as Nehemiah says, the gracious hand of God was upon him. By the time we get to Nehemiah, it's a different king. It's no longer Cyrus, it's Artaxerxes. And as you know from last week, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. The elements of the story are fascinating. As we notice right at the beginning, Nehemiah has a vision for reconstructing the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, when we think of large cities today, we don't think of encircled walls, right? Think of New York City, think of Chicago, think of L.A. You don't think of a wall that goes around the city. But in ancient days, every major city had a wall encircling it. It was part of its defense against its enemies. And Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and they're trying to reestablish the temple. And Nehemiah says, we got to get some walls up there. We're open to all kinds of hostility and people coming in, and, and that was his vision. And so what did he do? He got his vision together, put it together on a spreadsheet, no. Sent it by way of PowerPoint to Artaxerxes. No, he didn't do any of those. He didn't even write it down, so far as we know. He just kept it right here and right here. For four to five months, he said nothing. He was the closest individual to the king, and he did not tell the king about it. He waited. And what did he do during that period of time? He waited and he prayed. He prayed for an opportunity, I suppose, to present this to the king. And his opportunity came. Actually, all that time, he was doing a very shall we shall we say secular task, a very ordinary job, a very say menial task, even though the cupbearer to the king was an exalted position. Whenever he finally decides that it's time to do this, it happens in the moment. During the month of Nisan, which often was a grand celebration in the Persian kingdom, and they they frequently would celebrate the birthday of the king, sort of like a 4th of July, let's say. It's during that celebration that Nehemiah comes to the king, as he always did, the cupbearer to the king, to give him the wine. And the king looks at him and says, something's wrong. Why are you so downcast? Well, you might expect that that meant that the king was particularly insightful. But it's also true that the king knew that of all days, this was not a day to be downcast. On this day, everybody was celebrating and partying, and the wine was flowing freely. It was a feast. Everybody ought to be happy. And Nehemiah was downcast. And he says to Nehemiah, why? Why are you so downcast? You know, Nehemiah had been praying for four, five, six, maybe even longer months, building up his reserve of courage to approach the king. And when the king said, why are you so downcast, he froze. Now you might think, no, he didn't freeze because he spoke to the king. But we know emotionally he froze. He basically said, when the king said, why are you downcast? I was terrified. I was overcome with fear. You know, isn't it true that we think we can somehow store up a reservoir of Courage. And then when it's time for the event to happen, we lack the courage we thought we had. We may even pray for the courage. But when the moment comes along, it seems like it's not there. And that's where it's true that grace often comes to us in our greatest time of need. That's very characteristic of grace. So in the moment, what does Nehemiah do when he's terrified? He throws up a quick prayer to heaven. Nothing wrong with quick prayers to heaven. They're great. He said, oh no, Lord, I need some help here. <laughs> I quickly looked to heaven and prayed to God. And then he answered the king. And this is the way he answered the king. He said, why should my face not be downcast? Because... The land where my ancestors are buried is in disarray. It's a mess. Now, notice he doesn't mention Jerusalem. He doesn't do that for what appear to be obvious reasons, because Artaxerxes had already canceled the rebuilding of the temple at one point because of a particular charge against sedition. With Ezra. It wasn't true, but they had to stop. And he looks at the king and he says, Why should I not be sad? But he didn't use the word Jerusalem. We wonder why he did it this way. We think that the reason he approached it this way is because a Persian king had great respect for the dead. Ancestors were incredibly important to him. And Nehemiah, can I say very cleverly, led by the Spirit said, I'll touch that part of his heart. The land of my ancestors is in disarray. And then the king says to him, well, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah answers him. Well, what I really want is I want... To restore those walls. What I want is to be sent back to do it. What I also want is I want some security. I would like to have some letters from you for the governors in the trans-Euphrates area. So when I pass through those regions, I won't be attacked. The king not only grants him that request, but gives him sort of a military escort of sorts. So Nehemiah says, since God's hand was upon me, the king granted my request. Oh, you know what else is interesting? Speaking of Ezra and Nehemiah, the king says, you need help. Here it is. Here's your escort. Here's your certainty with my letters. He had actually offered to do something very similar with Ezra when he went back to rebuild the temple. And you know what Ezra said? Thanks, but no thanks. Ezra said, no. As a matter of fact, I want to trust God completely. I don't need any protection. Nehemiah, on the other hand, a follower of God, a great leader said, sure, I'll take the help. There's no wrong way to approach this. Different leaders, different people see opportunities differently. Ezra saw it differently for maybe a different reason than Nehemiah did. But the offer was there. Now, as we go on throughout this book, you'll notice that he returns and he's active in rebuilding the wall and has some of the same problems that Ezra did in the rebuilding of the temple. But that's just the short introduction to Nehemiah. Now I want to break from the story and make application to the life of faith. What are the lessons of faith that we learn from just this small portion so far, only a few verses into chapter two? I think the first lesson of faith, at least that jumps out to me, is that Nehemiah waited patiently on God. I read a quote this week, really hit me good. It said, waiting time is not wasted time. I'll say that again. Waiting time is not wasted time. Not if you're waiting on God. You know what the early Christian's first assignment was once Jesus ascended to the Father? Wait. Their first assignment was not to jump on a camel and go spread the gospel to every part of the world. It was wait. And how long did they wait? Six weeks. Six weeks until the timing was right and God poured out his Holy Spirit on the birth of this church and things exploded. Missionaries like Paul and Silas and a variety of other people in the New Testament seemed to understand this lesson of faith and they would routinely patiently wait for God's timing. They didn't try to smash down walls and do it their own way. They waited for God's timing. Are, are we, you and I, is it our characteristic to patiently Wait. Or are we more often than not trying to micromanage God's will? A sign of patience is the opportunity to wait. Actually, I don't know how you learn patience without having to wait. That's where you learn it. You wait. You know what the sign of a lack of patience is when you're called to wait? Among other things, it's talking too much. Nehemiah had a vision. He didn't talk about it. Nehemiah knew he had to wait patiently. He didn't talk about it. We have an idea and we can't keep it quiet. Maybe we're better off if we keep quiet at least for a while and wait patiently on God. There's one other thing it seems to me um, about this thing called patience. Patience dissolves this illusion that we're in control. When you patiently wait, the idea that you're in control just evaporates like a vapor. You know it's not real because you're waiting. The second major lesson of faith I see here is that Nehemiah embraces his circumstances. While he waited, he faithfully served the king. He accepted his divine assignment not to go to Jerusalem right away, but to work for the king. That was his job. So, for you and for me, is your job or your circumstances boring? Do they, do they seem, those jobs, like a third rail that's not necessarily connected with God and his kingdom? I have a real deep theological question for you. What does that matter? I'm not sure it does. I'm sure what matters is our perspective about the job, not whether or not it's directly related to the kingdom of God in a way that we think we can see. Is your vocation secular? What difference does that make? According to the Christian, there's no such thing as secular and sacred. I know that's a big statement, but we see all life as the life of God. Is your job sort of out of sight, out of mind, nobody notices? Nobody sees you, or why be concerned? The sovereign God of the universe sees you, knows what you're doing, and gives you the patience, if you'll let him, to do what he's called you to do. And then, on occasion in the quiet, away from all the hubbub and the crowd, without any fame, you get an acknowledgement that sounds a little bit like this: "Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done." Embracing your circumstances is a form of respecting authority. Nehemiah was uh, in a good position not to respect the king. But he did respect the king. You know, the dark side of righteousness, I suppose there's lots of dark sides of every good thing. But in this context, I I recall that the dark side of righteousness is arrogance. Why? Because we're right. Why? Because that makes us arrogant. Because we have the answer and they don't. That's the opposite of what God calls us to. The third major lesson I see in the story of Nehemiah is that he acknowledges God's sovereignty. He begins by saying, you're the Lord of heaven. He recognizes that there's a king above Artaxerxes. He realizes that he has to submit to God's plan by waiting. He recognizes he has to submit to the authority of the person who he's given char- who's given him charges. He absolutely rests on the sovereignty of God, and you know what? In doing so, he's basically saying, "My microcosm of reality, right here." cupbearer to the king in Persia is a picture of a global reality because God is the God of heaven. So I will submit to God in these circumstances while I trust God as the sovereign one of the universe. He in effect was saying what other parts of the Scripture say that the hand of God holds the heart of the king and it directs it like a water course. That's trusting in the sovereignty of God. So now just a few quick points of application. This this is gonna sound really tough, but I, I believe it's true and you could disagree with me, but constant worry is a contradiction to trusting God. Constant worry, I mean constant overwhelming worry, is a contradiction to trusting God. Because if we were truly trusting God, we would not worry about everything all the time like it was up to us. We'd be doing our job faithfully and trusting God. Um, <clears throat> As is true in most Marriages, my wife and I are entirely different individuals. Um, She is a planner. She wants everything to be on track. And if there's a diversion in the plan, it makes her very nervous. We're getting ready to take a trip that you guys actually gave us like three and a half years ago, pre pandemic, for being here for 25 years. And and we're looking forward to this trip. We're uh, headed out in June. I'm, I'm so glad that this trip is very meticulously planned by other people, and we have guides everywhere we go. Because I'm not a trusted guide for my wife, and there's really good reason for that. Okay. I'm the kind of guy before we had GPS that we would get the whole car pile, the whole family piled into the van. And I'd start out 46, and my wife would say, do you know where you're going? i say, yeah, out of 65. We'll figure it out from there. Then I'd pull out the map, stick it on the steering wheel, and we'd make our way there. And that, to me, it was just part of the adventure. That was ludicrous to her. Why, why would you do it that way? Um, now we have this GPS feature, which is really bothersome to me a lot of times. Um, turn here, go there, you know. So now I have a second person who knows what I ought to do, my wife and the GPS. (laughs) I love you, dear, but yeah. So on on one particular occasion, we had uh, decided to go to England to visit my son and daughter-in-law. My son was there doing graduate studies and it was gonna be great. And so we went to England and Landed and we were picked up and taken to their tiny little graduate student housing and we stayed at another place a hotel not far away. You could walk there. We walked to the hotel with David my son and. Got ready for the night the next morning. We were supposed to meet him somewhere like at 10 o'clock or something like that. So we started out and I thought for sure I knew how to get back. (laughs) And uh, I think we took a wrong turn. And. Um. My wife was just apoplectic, right? We're gonna get lost, where are we going? And I'm thinking, it's England. I can speak the language, I'll just ask somebody, right? But no, so I realized uh, very quickly, it was time to call David. (laughs) Called David, said, uh, yeah, we are a little worried about how to get back and he said, it's all right, I'll be over in just a few minutes and really it was only a few minutes. So he comes over and uh, takes us to where we were planning to go, which I think was his place. And I noticed something. When David showed up, her countenance changed. For the rest of that trip, she walked beside him, not beside me because he knew all the rail lines. He knew exactly where he was going. He was well-prepared and she was happy. And so was I. But it's not my disposition to have it all planned out that way. And it's not good. So this is really a bad analogy. (laughs) But David is like God a trustworthy guide, and I'm like me, not. So when you're trusting the sovereignty of God, you're trusting in a worthy guide, a one who knows the beginning and the end, who has your days numbered, who can number the hairs on your head, who knows everything about you, and you're under God's care. So why not trust a guide like that? Even when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with you. His rod and staff to comfort you. So one other point of practical application before the conclusion, and it's this. What is true of the king for Nehemiah is true of you and your boss. That's a tough one, isn't it? This just seems so spiritual and everything, and after all, it was the king of Persia, the greatest empire in the world. Trusting your boss there really wasn't an option. (laughs) Submitting the authority of somebody above you was just part of the routine. You could probably not submit, right? Should you? I would suggest that you and I need to learn to submit to human authority so that we can understand what it means to submit to divine authority. And sometimes it's a pagan, secular, blankety-blank authority that you're called to submit to. Last thing is an encounter um, that a friend of mine told me about one time. He said one of his colleagues said to him, you know, for a person who always talks about faith... You don't live like you have very much. Ouch. I wonder how many people have thought that of us but not been so bold as to say it. For a person that talks about faith so much, you don't seem to live with very much. I think Nehemiah, as a leader called by God to do great things... Provides us that lesson to a certain extent. We can't just have faith. We can't just believe. we got to walk in faith. So I, I would suggest that we make that our prayer. Going into this week. That we could live like this. People who not only have faith but walk by faith. People, I also would recommend, can I give you a suggestion for tomorrow morning? Start out with the Lord's Prayer and concentrate on that famous phrase, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the example of imperfect people. Thank you for the sovereign designs that you have for our life. Thank you that you are patient with our humanity. Thank you that you have placed structures and people in our lives to help us learn how to trust Those structures and people often fail us and it's routinely hard to submit to them. Our circumstances overwhelm us and don't seem like they have anything to do with your will. But there's some mystery going on, Lord, that we don't understand. And if we're faced with mystery, we can try to figure out all the details or we can turn the mystery over to you. And do what we know is right. And when we do what we know is right and trust you with the rest, in our small corner of the world, your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth just like it is in heaven. Thank you. Amen.